Chapter 14 Guardian of the Oath And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin, and commit a trespass against the Lord, and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or hath found that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely, in any of all these that a man doeth, sinning therein, then it shall be, because he hath sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth, in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation, for a trespass offering, unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. Leviticus 6, 1-7 This passage appears in the section of Leviticus that presents the laws governing trespasses and guilt offerings. The sin in this instance was intentional. It is said to be a sin against the Lord, yet what is described is a sin against a neighbor. The question arises, is keeping an item entrusted for safekeeping, or robbery, or keeping someone's lost item a sin against the Lord, judicially speaking? Theologically speaking, all sin is a sin against the Lord, to be judged in God's final court. The victim of the crime becomes God's legal representative. The earthly target of man's rebellion against God's standards. He is the victim, therefore, of a boundary violation. But this passage specifically identifies these transgressions as trespasses against God, whereas other trespasses listed in the Bible are not specifically identified as such. No ram offering was required for those other sins. Why this omission in all the other sins of life if all sin is judicially a trespass against God? Why single out these sins? The answer lies elsewhere than in the enumerated sins themselves. It was the transgressor's false verbal testimony regarding these sins that served as the differentiating factor, lying to the neighbor or swearing falsely to a civil court. Writes Wenham, quote, By abusing the oath, a person took God's holy name in vain and trespassed against his holiness. Therefore, a reparation offering was required to make amends. End quote. The sin was twofold. A violation of a neighbor's personal property rights, point three of the covenant, boundaries, coupled with a violation of either personal verbal assurances to the victim or the violation of a formal judicial oath, point four, oath. Because two kinds of sin were involved, one formal, covenantal, one covenantal, economic, there had to be two separate acts of restoration. The first act of restoration, the 120% restitution payment, was required by God's law to satisfy the earthly victim in his legal capacity as victim. The second act, sacrificing a ram, was necessary to satisfy God in his capacity as high priest of the heavenly court. Both the victim and the priest served as covenantal agents of God, the first civil, the second ecclesiastical. The lie or false oath had been intended to deflect either the victim or the court from discovering the truth. In this sense, it was an affront to God's kingly justice. 
it was an attack on the integrity of the heavenly court and his representative earthly civil court. The false testimony may or may not have put someone else under suspicion. We are not told. What we are told is that there were two separate forms of restitution. The return to the victim of the full value of whatever had been stolen, plus a penalty payment of 20%, a double tithe, and a ram to be sacrificed by a priest. Civil Agents of God's Heavenly Court The connection between the false oath and the civil court is easy to understand. The court enforces justice in the name of God and on behalf of the victim. It sets things straight judicially and economically. It defends its own integrity. Why, then, is the court not authorized by God to collect for itself the extra 20% or allow to impose some additional penalty? Why does the entire restitution payment appear to go to the victim, since a false oath was made to impede the proper functioning of the court? We can find the answer to these questions by first observing that the initial lie was made to the neighbor, not to the court. If a soul sinned and committed trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor. This preliminary section of the passage does not mention any formal court proceeding. Yet the criminal still owed a ram to God. This indicates that the victim, to whom the criminal lied, was in fact an agent of the civil court, even though the court had not been called into session. It was the victim who possessed lawful authority to call the court into session. The victim was gathering facts regarding the violation. He was acting, therefore, not only on his own behalf, but also as an agent of society's primary institution of civil justice, the court. The lie to the neighbor was therefore judicially an oath to a covenantal institution. It had a unique binding character which covenantal falsehoods do not possess. The victim in seeking justice does not represent only himself. Biblical jurisprudence recognizes the earthly victim as a representative of God. A sin against him is always in his legal capacity as God's representative. The ultimate target of the sin is God. The sinner in history attacks various aspects of the creation in his attempt to defy God, since God cannot be attacked directly. He violates earthly boundaries in his rebellion against God. For example, Adam and Eve cannot attack God directly. Instead, they violated the boundary that God had placed around the forbidden tree. This leads us to a significant conclusion. The very existence of an earthly victim calls God's heavenly court of justice into session. If the existence of a boundary violation becomes known to the victim, this discovery automatically invokes an earthly civil court of justice. This invocation may not be a formal public act, but God, as the sovereign king of the commonwealth, calls it into session historically. When the victim learns of the violation, he is supposed to begin a search for incriminating evidence. Crimes are not to go unpunished in God's social order, for they are inherently attacks on Him. Crimes are to be solved in history if the costs of conviction are not prohibitive. For example, if too many resources are not drained from the victim or the court in solving a particular crime. The world is under a curse, the curse of scarcity. Genesis 3, 17-19 There are limits to anti-crime budgets. In a world of scarcity, including scarcity of accurate knowledge, there cannot be perfect justice. Justice in history is purchased at a price. If the victim thinks it will take too many of his own resources to identify and convict the criminal, or if he thinks his accusation could be turned against him later for lack of evidence gathered by the court, 
he has the option of refusing to pursue the matter. He can let God settle it in eternity. He can rest confident in God's perfect justice. Rushduni said it well, quote, History culminates in Christ's triumph, and eternity settles all scores. End quote. God nevertheless wants criminals brought to justice in history. The Bible places the responsibility of pursuing justice on the individual who is most likely to want to see the criminal brought to justice, the victim. Because the crime was ultimately against God and his mandated social order, the victim becomes God's primary representative agent in pursuing justice. The victim is also uniquely motivated to begin this search for incriminating evidence, since he is the loser, and he will receive a restitution payment upon confession by, or conviction of, the criminal. As I have argued elsewhere, if he refuses to pursue the criminal or bring charges against him, the civil court is not to intrude on the case, unless he is a minor or legally incompetent. Thus, when he begins his investigation of the crime, he is serving as God's primary covenantal agent. He is officially gathering information to be used in a covenant lawsuit against the criminal. He is acting as an agent of two courts, God's heavenly court and his earthly civil court. In a sense, this does not do full justice to the victim's unique legal position. The civil court is to some degree the agent of the victim, since the victim, in his legal capacity as a victim, is a representative of God. The victim alone determines whether or not to prosecute the covenant lawsuit. The court is to support his decision. If he brings a covenant lawsuit in his own name, he inevitably also brings it in God's name, for God was the primary victim. The civil court is to examine the evidence and announce judgment, but this judgment is made in the name of the two victims, God and the earthly victim. The civil court is an agent of the victim in a way that the ecclesiastical court is not. The civil court acts to defend the victim's rights, whereas the priest acts to defend the civil court's authority. In a court, there must be interrogation of the suspects. God in the garden publicly interrogated Adam and Eve regarding the facts of the case. It is a crime to testify falsely in God's court or in man's. False testimony is intended to deflect God's justice. Offering it implies that God can be deceived, or at the very least deterred from bringing negative sanctions in history. It rests on a man's self-confidence in his ability to deceive God's representative agents in history. He believes that he can deflect or delay God's judgment in history by means of misleading information. This faith in false testimony rests on a theology that assumes that God is non-existent, or not omniscient, or not omnipotent, or does not bring significant negative sanctions in history. It assumes that heaven's court is non-existent, or that God is forgetful, or that time apart from restitution covers all sins, universal salvation. For example, that God does not bring negative sanctions in eternity. It assumes, at the very least, that God's negative sanctions outside the earthly court are minimal compared to the negative sanctions that can be imposed by the court. For example, double restitution to the victim. Exodus 22.4 Priestly Agents of God's Heavenly Court the required animal sacrifice served as an atonement for a crime against God's civil court. This sacrifice covered the sin ritually. It was a public acknowledgment of a transgression against God's civil court. What is significant here is that an ecclesiastical act was required to cover a civil transgression. This raises a key question. Why was there a ritual connection between a civil court and the priesthood? Because of the twofold character of God's judgment. The civil court represents God's heavenly court in a subordinate fashion, 
which is judicially analogous to the victim, who in his legal capacity as a victim represents God subordinately. The civil court acts on behalf of the victim, but only in its judicial capacity as the minister of kingly justice, Romans 13.4, as the institution that lawfully bears the sword. But God requires more than civil sanctions to placate his wrath against the criminal. He sits on his throne as both high priest and king, on earth. These offices are always divided, except in the person and offices of Jesus Christ. God must be placated in both of his offices. This is why no single earthly court can lawfully offer complete atonement for the criminal. God therefore requires a priestly sacrifice. In the New Testament, this priestly sacrifice was made by Jesus Christ at Calvary. The various animal sacrifices in the Old Testament representationally prefigured this ultimate sacrifice, Hebrews 9. A question legitimately can be raised. Is any post-Calvary public mark of contrition lawfully imposed by the church on the perjurer? If so, on what basis? If the perjurer is a church member, he has partaken of the Lord's Supper throughout the period following his false testimony to the court. This placed him in jeopardy of God's negative sanctions, 1 Corinthians 11.30. He ignored this threat, thereby implicitly adopting the same false theology of God's minimal sanctions previously described. The church's officers deserve to know of the transgression and can lawfully assign a penalty. This penalty should not exceed the value of a ram in the Old Testament economy. If the perjurer is not a church member, he is still dependent on the continuing faithfulness of the church to preserve God's common grace in history. The state can lawfully function in non-Christian environments, but only because of the common grace of God mediated through His church and its sacraments. Offering these representative sacrifices in the Old Covenant was the permanent responsibility of God's church. This is why Israel had to offer 70 bullocks annually as sacrifices for the symbolic 70 pagan nations of the world, Numbers 29, 12-32, plus a single bullock for herself on the eighth day, Numbers 29, 36. What this means is that the church is the guardian of the covenantal oath. This is an inescapable conclusion from the fact that only the church has the authority to accept the perjurer's sacrifice and atonement for the false oath. The state cannot offer this release from guilt. This oath involves the formal calling down of God's negative covenant sanctions on the oath-taker. He who uses God's name in vain in a formal judicial conflict must then seek legal covering by the church. The reason why the oath is guarded by the church is that the church alone can lawfully invoke the eternal negative sanctions of God against an individual. Thus, by invoking the oath in court, the criminal necessarily brings himself under the authority of the church. The modern practice of allowing atheists to affirm to tell the truth in court, but not to swear on the Bible or in God's name, is a direct affront against God and against the church as the guardian of the oath. It is also inevitably an act of divinizing the state by default. The state becomes the sole enforcer of the affirmation. In such a worldview, there is no appeal beyond the state and its sanctions. The atheist's affirmation is therefore a judicial act demanding the removal of God from the courtroom. Thus, it requires the creation of a new oath system, with the state as the guardian of the oath. The state acts not in God's name, but in its own. Rush Dooney's comments are on target. Quote, if a witness is asked to swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth without any reference to God, truth can be and is commonly redefined in terms of himself. The oath in God's name is the legal recognition of God. As the source of all things and the only ground of true being, it establishes the state under God and under his law. 
The removal of God from oaths and the light and dishonest use of oaths is a declaration of independence from Him, and it is warfare against God in the name of new gods, apostate man, and his totalitarian state. End quote. Conclusion The biblical state can lawfully impose negative sanctions against a perjurer, but only on behalf of the victim. The state cannot lawfully pronounce the eternal negative sanctions of the oath against anyone. The state can lawfully require an oath, but it is not the sole institutional enforcer of this oath. The presence of the oath to God in a public acknowledgement of the non-autonomy of the state. God is above the state, and the church stands next to it as the guardian of the oath. This means that theocracy is required by God's civil law. Without the God-given authority to require an oath, the state would lose its covenantal status as a lawful, monopolistic institution with the authority to enforce physical sanctions against evildoers. It would lose its status as a covenantal institution. Yet by imposing an oath, it inevitably places itself under the protection of the church, for the church is the defender of the oath. As the great 17th century jurist, Sir Edward Coke put it, quote, Protection draws allegiance, and allegiance draws protection, end quote. To argue that the state imposes the oath as an agency under God apart from the church is to make the state an ecclesiastical intermediary between God and man, an institution possessing the power to declare God's negative eternal sanctions. An oath is always self-maledictory. It calls down God's negative sanctions on the oath-taker. This has to include eternal negative sanctions. Thus, the state cannot lawfully act as an autonomous intermediary between God and man, it acts only on behalf of victims, God's primary representatives in criminal cases.